Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. All right, team, let's get started. We'll begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Suffer me not to be separated from thee. From the wicked foe, defend me. At the hour of my death, call me and bid me come unto thee, that with thy saints I may praise thee forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, you've come back, and I'm grateful. (laughs) Whether you're back because last week was good, I'm grateful for that. Or if you're back because you hoped it might get better this week, I'm grateful for a second chance. What I want to ask is this. Did you hear this on Sunday or on Saturday, as the case may be? Reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, he for a little while was made lower than the angels, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Listen to this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and through whom all things exist, this is God the Father, in bringing many children to glory, should make the leader to their salvation perfect through suffering. That's Hebrews 2.10. Christ was made perfect through suffering. It's reminiscent of Hebrews 5. I'll bring that out for you as well. Hebrews 5. Here we go. In the days when Christ was in the flesh... He offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. This is Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who believe in him. Here's my question to you. What could that possibly mean? That's not a rhetorical question. And it's not a question to which I have the answer. This is the point at which you have to have the daring to be wrong in a fruitful way. I've made an entire career out of not being afraid to be wrong in a fruitful way. You know, there's a point in a group project where somebody has to propose the dumb idea so that there's a framework that then you can knock down and build something better. That's my career, okay? 
I'm not afraid to do that. There's a certain kind of courage and a certain kind of humility in it. What could that possibly mean? That Christ became perfect through obedience. I thought he was already perfect God and perfect man. And yet the scriptures cannot be set aside. And so you have to wrestle with that. Christ was made perfect through suffering. What could that possibly mean for our humanity and our union with him? What's that? We really need to suffer. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. There is a way for us to be perfect as well. But what does it mean for Christ, who is perfect, to become perfect? What's that? He already is. He's perfectly human from the moment of his incarnation. Good. Keep bringing that. All we're trying to do here is wrestle with this. Because it seems to me, here, let me give you a little clue. The question of suffering, I don't have the answer. I have not brought you here to give you the answer. I brought you here so that we might wrestle with it together. Because that's going to be the solution, not me handing some packet over to you, but us learning together how to wrestle with this more deeply. Okay, but although perfectly integrated into, yeah, okay, right. Yee, here he is. Hmm, what are we going to do with that? All right, so keep pushing. He was already perfect enough for his own sake, but through suffering he became perfect for all of humanity. So you're saying his divinity wasn't sufficient. Ah, no, it's a good try. That's a very good try, right? I just want to, just going to keep poking holes in something until we, latch on to something. Wait, yes? Is it if he had rebelled against it, it wouldn't have been perfect? Well, that's certainly true. By perfectly perfect through obedience, he was suffering by not pursuing it. He showed his perfection? He showed his perfection, but it doesn't say he showed his perfection. It says he became perfect. He was made perfect through obedience and suffering. Now we're on to something here, aren't we? So now, so now, even Christ, who is perfect, still has to grow, doesn't he? He still has to grow in his humanity. He doesn't already know everything in that sense. He learns to be a carpenter from his father. He learns the prayers of the Psalms from his mother. And he grew in wisdom and grace, says the scriptures. What does that mean as he grows older? It's not that he's imperfect, but can he grow from a boy into a man and become more perfect? Not because there was anything imperfect in his boyhood, but he's growing from glory to glory. Not from less perfect to more perfect, but from one kind of perfection to another and greater kind. I think so. Now this is rooted in the scriptures. 
Now we've struck oil. How deep will it run? Let me suggest just two images to you for you to wrestle with. Not because I think they're the answer, but because I think this is the dumb answer that might help us get to something deeper. When a seed grows into a flower, it becomes more perfect. Not because there was anything wrong with it as a seed. When a woman becomes a mother, she becomes more perfect, not because there was anything wrong with her as a woman. She was perfect in that sense, and yet something is added. What if Christ is made perfect in a similar way? Not because there was anything imperfect to begin with, but just because he grew. Yes. St. Anselm is at great pains over this in the proslogion, no, in the Cordeus Homo. Yes, he has to be like Adam. He has to have that freedom. But his freedom is perfectly actualized in saying yes. Whereas Adam's freedom, exercised in saying no, made him imperfect. Yeah, he's got that freedom. Well, anyways, it's, uh, it's worth wrestling with, I think. Even if we can't come up with an answer. I think we can come closer to pay dirt. All right. Remember, there are, this is for if you have any questions. Are there any questions as we begin tonight? Yes, please. No, if you watch Shadowlands, you'll find out how Jack and Joy married. It does, yeah. Watch Shadowlands, either the BBC version or the American version, and you'll learn how they married. It was interesting. Well, it's, it was very strange in its origins, but it, uh, I think the BBC version does a better job of laying out how he actually fell in love in the midst of those very strange circumstances. Just, just so you know, the curiosity there is Jack married Joy because she needed British citizenship. He just, was, he just did it as a favor to her. And, and she expected that to mean something, and, and he didn't, really. So there was a little journey of discovery there. That was interesting. All right. I want to return to the notion of power that I brought up last class with a suggestion that there might be a problem in how the problem of evil is framed. It's usually set up with regard to God's omnipotence. If God is all-powerful and all-good and all-knowing, then there should not be evil. And I suggested there might be a problem in how we conceive of power. I want to follow up on that just a little bit before we do anything else tonight. St. Anselm said, kind of famously, I don't need to write this down. You can write it down. St. Anselm said, God is that than which nothing greater can be thought. And he fashioned a proof for the existence of God around that, right? By saying, well, it's greater to exist in reality than just to exist in idea. So God must exist because he is that than which nothing greater can be thought. And if I could only think God, that would be one thing. And if I could think him and he exists, that would be a greater thing. But it's a cool notion. 
And we used it last week to talk about heaven, right? The little candle, the light in the room, the joy we experience, the joy of heaven. God is always something greater. So if God is that than which nothing greater can be thought, then if there are two kinds of power, God will have to exercise whatever is the greater kind of power. Okay so far? That, that's okay as an abstract conception. But where does it go? Let me suggest that it goes here. Our own experience tells us that there are two kinds of power in the world, at least. So for example, in school, and here I'm just drawing this from a pastoral letter that Archbishop Carlson released in 2009 on peace. And he asked the question in the letter, what does it mean for us to exercise power? In school, for example, we all had teachers whom we feared and teachers whose approval we sought. Did we? Yes? Following me there? You all had teachers like that, right? Teachers we feared and teachers we loved. Those teachers whom we feared lost their power over us when we graduated. Why? Because they could no longer give us detention. And that was the extent of their power, right? Those whose regard we sought, however, retained their power over us after graduation. Why? Because we continued to think, and sometimes continue to think for the rest of our lives, what they would do in a certain situation, or what advice they would give us, or simply how they would look at us if we did it one way or the other way. There are two kinds of power there. Of these two kinds, which of them is real? No, wait. No, no. Both of them are real. But of the two kinds of power, which is more powerful? The second one is more powerful. They're both real. History also shows us that there are two kinds of power in the world. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin both exercised tremendous power in history. Their power was maintained by the use of coercive force. Many leaders in history have tried to follow this path. By contrast, Mohandas Gandhi and Mother Teresa also exercised power in history. But their power was of a different kind. So think for a moment, how would you describe their power? What's that? Bottom up. That's one way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say if you lean into that a little bit more, it worked by persuasion. And it worked by service, not by force. Because there's a certain way in which Hitler exercised power by the bottom up too, right? Got himself elected, didn't he? And then he turned around and, yeah, he did. It was tricky that way, okay? And the Russian Revolution was brought into play by the masses. Okay? Yeah, in a certain way. So I think we have to be more particularly descriptive there. Of those two kinds of power, which is real? They're both real. Hitler and Stalin exercised a real kind of power. Gandhi and Mother Teresa exercised a real kind of power. The difference, I think, is that the power of Gandhi and Mother Teresa is just as real today 
as it was then. And so, it show, and so it shows itself to be a greater kind of power. Both are real, but one is greater than the other, even if it takes time in history to make that clear. Avengers, Infinity War, anyone? Right? Thanos exercises a certain kind of power. How long will it last? Till the next movie. That's a plot manipulation, but what are they saying? That's a, I'm not going to get into all that, okay? There is, yes, but it's going to take me 45 minutes to unpack it. There certainly is, but what exactly is it? So the mythological stories that folks are seeing today show us these two kinds of power. Whether you watch Star Wars or X-Men or Harry Potter or anything, you're going to see these different ways of exercising power, aren't you? Albus Dumbledore exercises power. Lord Voldemort exercises power. They do it in these different ways. Right? Magneto exercises power. Professor Xavier exercises power, and so on and so forth. All right? Come up with your own favorite stories. So the point is this. If God is all-powerful, that than which nothing greater can be thought, then God ought to exercise the greatest kind of power. And God's followers ought to do the same. So what does that mean for how we conceive of God's power? And what does it mean for how we conceive of our power? Again, that's a question more than it's an answer. But here's what I want you to do. Perhaps on your way out of here tonight, stop by the Shroud of Turin replica. Because you might go up these steps and turn to the right and you'll miss it. But if you go up these steps and just go into the middle of the hallway, there it is. And here's my question. What if this is an image of power. Usually you just look at it and say, oh, that's an image of suffering and how much suffering Christ went through because he loved us. But what if the suffering is a sign of love and the love is actually a kind of power? And then it becomes an image of power. I think that's worth thinking about. Well, let's get practical for a little while. Can I have some help handing these out, please? Okay, so this is a short article called Living, Suffering, and Dying. What for? Like the graphic on top? Yeah, the graphic is good. See, and that's the thing. That's where I need help because I'm good with ideas. I'm not so good with images. <laughs> I need some help when it comes to images. So, so thanks be to God for graphic artists and graphic designers. So here, we'll just, uh, I'm going to read you through some sections of this with commentary, or what I call, we call in my family, heckling. As Pope John Paul II said, human suffering is a mystery. Sooner or later, all families experience it in the midst of life. It is either physical, psychological, or spiritual. So let me ask you this. Is there a distinction between pain and suffering? Yes. What is that distinction? Huh? Pain you feel like it's physical. Okay, good. Mental, psychological, emotional, and spiritual as well. Okay? I'm just going to lean into that distinction a little bit. Peter Kreeft says this in his very good book, Fundamentals of the Faith. 
in a section on the problem of evil that I will make sure you get. It says, um, here, whether this consequence of sin was a physical change in the world or only a spiritual change in human consciousness, right, think about that. The link between pain and suffering, is that physical or is it mental? Whether the thorns and thistles grew in the garden only after the fall or whether they were always there but were only felt as painful by the newly fallen consciousness is another question. But in either case, the connection between spiritual evil and physical evil has to be as close as the connection between the two things they affect, the body and the soul. What is your experience of the relationship between pain and suffering? the physical experience of pain and the mental, psychological, emotional, spiritual experience of suffering. Sometimes suffering can cause you to feel pain. Because you can, when I see something happen to a family member, right? sometimes when I even see a hit in a football game, oh, Sometimes when I read an email, it literally knocks, the, knocks my breath away. What is that? Well, that's moving from the soul to the body. Yeah. Sure. So now let, let me lean into this, though. But, but the further aspect of the question is, can you, have you ever felt pain without it being suffering? And have you ever felt pain when it was suffering? Yes. yes. Can, you, can you think of an experience, or you've got to think about it? I've got to think about it. This is, the, this is the question. So we want to tease these apart. And what happens to those when your face is turned toward God? And what happens to them when your face is turned away from God? I'm not saying there's only one answer to that. I'm saying that's the question you need to ask. What happens to your suffering under those circumstances? Now let me just throw out this idea, by the way. What if every time Jesus healed somebody... He knew he was going to pay for it later. What if every time he healed someone and power went forth from him, that was one more suffering that he was storing up for the cross? And what if he knew that? I ask the question because... Sorry, I'm going to go geometrical on you here. You know there are two ways to plot something like that? This is a little bit like the humanity and the divinity of Christ, right? Jesus healed the man born blind. He wept at the death of Lazarus. He walked on the water. He fell asleep in the boat. He cured a man. Uh, he forgave a man's sins. He got hungry. He was thirsty with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? You see these humanity and divinity things. You know, there are two ways to plot this. You can come up with 
just a flat geometrical solution to that. It's a sine wave. The other way to plot it, yeah, is to take a circle that exists in this third dimension and take the arm, the radial arm of the circle, and set it in motion and move it forward. And just plot the position of the tip. And what will the position of the tip look like if I plot it in two dimensions? It will just go up and down and up and down. So what if Jesus, in the midst of the humanity and the divinity, all the things we can name, was also doing things in a spiritual realm that we hadn't really thought of until just now we thought of it? And there were whole dimensions and backstories. And so like when the, the, the Syrophoenician woman comes, or the, the woman comes and says, I want you to heal my daughter. And Jesus doesn't respond to her. And she persists and he says, it's not right. Take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. And she says, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. What if that was a taunt that she used to use with an enemy of hers when she was four years old and Jesus was bringing it back home to her now? And I'm not saying that's what happened. All I'm saying is I bet there was a backstory for every one of those things. And I bet Jesus hit it right on the mark. Stuff that we don't even know he was doing. But we can presume that he was. Because you know we all do it. Because you know when you're talking to a friend, you may be praying for them behind the scenes. You may have been thinking about them beforehand. And your prayer may actually be having an effect on them even as you're talking to them. Okay? If we can do it, so did Jesus. Anyways, so think about that relationship between suffering, physical pain, and suffering. Because I can tell you the, the experience of pain changed as my wife gave birth progressively to six children. The pain did not lessen. But the suffering changed. What was that? We all experienced that. Okay? So that's the, I just want to ask you about that. Um, Pope John Paul II talks about this in Salvifici Dolores, his apostolic letter on suffering. Have you thought of this? Have you experienced this? Here's something even more important in this article. The next thing he says, toward the, the beginning of the bottom of that front page, toward the end of his life, and already weakened by illness, Paul Emile Cardinal Leger former Archbishop of Montreal, exclaimed while talking about nursing homes for the elderly, so much unused suffering. Useless? No. Unused. Can suffering be useful? The discovery that it can be allows men and women to face suffering with courage and perseverance, knowing that they're achieving something for the kingdom of God. What would that mean? Now notice here he's not just talking about pain, he's talking about suffering. Although I think he means both at the same time. Can that pain be used? Can that suffering be used? Have you ever experienced that? What would it mean for you? Certainly Jesus put his suffering to use. Let me just give you a, a simple example from my own experience. It's not suffering per se, but I have discovered that in order to keep a clear mind, I need to fast. So before I teach, I don't eat. Or if I eat, I eat lightly, like fruit. Because physical food dulls my interior senses. 
and a lack of food sharpens my interior senses. And I have had to learn how to put that to use. Is it easy? No, it's a discipline. Does it work? It works for me. Have you ever experienced this, putting your suffering to use? What is it like? You know that it can be the case. But the question now is, what is it like in your experience? So the thing about fasting and clarity of mind is where I already experience the fruits. So that's easy. I can see that it works. But what happens when you can't see that it works? Sometimes I pray and fast for someone and I can see that it works. And sometimes, man, Thanos just makes those people disappear. And I think that's the great thing about that movie. What if, yeah, what if, I mean, it's awful, right? Movies aren't supposed to end like that. All the good people are supposed to live, especially my favorites. But in real life, they don't. So they're putting the question back to us. This is not going to be a happy ending. Would you be willing to suffer and die, even if this might not turn out well, just to know that you are fighting on the right side? Did you ever see that famous picture of Dwight Eisenhower with the troops before D-Day? Look it up sometime. You know what he's asking them? Yeah. He's asking them the Infinity War question. Hey guys, I think this is going to work in the long run. I think we've got a plan and it's going to be successful. My question to you is this. Would you be willing to die to help make this successful? even if you may not see the success. And do you see the look in their eyes? Every one of them saying, yes, sir. I'd be willing to do that. They don't see the fruits, but we know historically that the fruits were there. Okay, that's the question to you. Okay, this is less entertaining than last week was. Yes. But now it's time to dig in. Okay. okay, we'll move on to the next thing here. Uh, number three. So we turn over to page three. Simply living for God. And it says, each human being is offered the possibility of living with God and for God. Here's where I want to bring back that question of what does it mean for us to exercise power? So two teachers in your experience, exercised power. Which of those kinds do you want to exercise? What does it mean for you to exercise the deeper kind of power? Two people in history exercised power. Hitler and Mother Teresa. Stalin and Gandhi. Which kind of power do you want to exercise? What would it mean for you to exercise it? This man offered power exercised power in this way, what will it mean for you to exercise that kind of power? We all do this in our own way, right? People ask me, why did you become a theologian? And I say, oh, because I had this teacher as a freshman in college. The guy, well, he was a leprechaun. Honestly, he went to Notre Dame and everything. He used to sit in front of class with his legs folded, 
And he'd just sit and he would lean toward us with his cup of coffee and he would say, what do you want, people? In his lovely southern accent, what do you want? Money? Power? And there was a light in his eyes and, and he broke open our experience for us. And I thought to myself after that class, I want to be E. Spring Steel. I didn't want to be bald like him. <laughs> Too well, that's how it works out. I didn't want to be a scripture scholar like him. He was, a, he was a expert in Luke. But I wanted to be alive the way he was alive. And I wanted to ask questions the way he asked questions. And I wanted to break open experience the way he broke open experience. Because I saw in him a beautiful kind of power. And it wasn't the power of manipulation. It was the power of connecting people's experience with God. And I thought, I always wanted to do that. That was a power he exercised. You have met people who exercise power. Have you ever analyzed the way they exercise power? Broken it down into different categories and think, what's my way of exercising power? And of all the different kinds of power I exercise, which is the greatest kind of power? And how do I go back there? Do you want to know who exercises power when you're in the hospital? Nurses exercise power when you're in the hospital. Nurses make the world go round. Nothing against doctors. Doctors have their own kind of power, that's for sure. But you know if you've ever been in a hospital, or if your kid has ever been in a hospital, that it's nurses that make the world turn. It's a different kind of power, isn't it? Hey, so think about that. Think about power in this way. That's, so this is your experience coming to the aid of philosophy. We talk about God being all-powerful, but I think usually when we talk about it, we have no idea what we're talking about because we haven't really looked at our experience of power. And if you look at your experience of power, it will bring you back to God being all-powerful in a new way. How do you do that? Just below that, very simply to live with God in our everyday work and family life, in our leisure and social activities, is to talk with God and offer him everything, our efforts, our joys, our disappointments, our enthusiasm, our sufferings, our projects, our errors, our successes, our failures, our dreams, and our hopes. Does that sound like a prayer, anyone? It's the morning offering. Well, Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and... I bring this up because actually the Archbishop wrote about this last week. Paragraph 901 of the Catechism. Hence the laity, that's us, dedicated as they are to Christ and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Come Holy Spirit. Are marvelously called and prepared so that ever richer, even richer fruits of the Spirit may be produced in them. For all their works, prayers, and apostolic undertakings, family and married life, daily work, relaxation of mind and body, if they are accomplished in the spirit, indeed, even the hardships of life, if patiently borne, all these become spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, that's pretty deliberate language. Where have you seen that language before? Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's the Eucharist. 
This is very deliberately Eucharistic language. Watch what happens next. In the celebration of the Eucharist, these may most fittingly be offered to the Father, along with the body of the Lord. So when the bread and wine are brought forward at Mass, what do they represent? Body and blood is the usual answer. Body and blood is not correct. They have not yet become the body and blood. They will become later the body and blood. They do not yet represent the body and blood. They represent us, our offerings. And we are invited as the bread comes forward to put the fruit of our labor into the paten. And when the chalice is brought forward, we are invited to place our sufferings in the chalice that they may be transformed and offered back to us. Who does the consecration? Priest? Uh, I don't know. I'm afraid to say this now because I'm afraid he's going to correct me. <laughs> listen to this. Listen to this. You know the priest does the consecration by the laying on of the hands, but here's what the catechism says. And so, worshiping everywhere by their holy actions, the laity consecrate the world itself to God. Who consecrates? What do the laity consecrate? How do they consecrate the world? By offering their prayers and works and joys and sufferings and leisure and hardships and so on and so forth. Who was the chief editor of the first part of the catechism? That would be one Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, better known to us as Benedict XVI. Do you think he's deliberately using theological language there? No. Did he? No. Did he ever not? You see, what he's explaining here is the baptismal priesthood of the laity and how we exercise it. So often we say, well, as lay people, we don't have any power in the church. Oh, we do. We just don't know how to exercise the power that we have. That's a different conception of power, isn't it? There it is. Well, I can't do anything. I'm not a priest. Oh, but I can. Because I have been baptized priest, prophet, and king. And sometimes people call me father. And I think it's lovely. And then they correct themselves. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I think what they're recognizing is my baptismal priesthood. And it was one of my students who taught me that. Because when I first became a high school teacher, my first day on the job was canceled because one of our sophomores had lost her father in a skydiving accident. The chute never opened, and we were all going to the funeral. And as I sat praying at the end of the funeral, the Lord said to me, I didn't hear any voices, just some part of me knew. I don't hear voices. But some part of your heart knows. You know, have you ever been in trouble with your mom or dad? And you avoid them because some part of you knows what's coming. Your heart knows the truth, right? Your heart knows this. So the Lord showed my heart, you will have this student in your class. And he gave me an image. And I'm not going to share with you the image because it was only for her. And so later when I talked to the registrar, she said, well, let me look up and see if you're going to have this student in your class. And I said to myself, oh, I will. And she said to me, oh, you have her in class. Well, as a new teacher, you'll want to be aware of that. I said to her at the end of the first day of class, 
listen, I'm so sorry about your dad. When the time is right, come back and see me because I have something I want to tell you. She said, okay. She never came back to see me. And we had a great relationship all of sophomore year. She's a super dynamic, faithful, sweet kid, really smart, plugged into the faith. I'm doing theology class. We're just breaking open scripture. She's always right there, right? So we have a good teacher-student relationship. I don't have her sophomore year. I have her again senior year. We have the same great relationship. She's still a super sweet kid, super faithful, has a great relationship with the Lord, wicked smart, not just book smart, but people smart. So we have this good relationship, and she still never comes back to see me. Until finally, it's two weeks before graduation, and I say, um, remember, I have something to tell you. And she looks at me with that knowing look, like her heart knows, and she said, I know. I've been avoiding you for three years. <laughs> so finally, we got together, and I told her, that gave this image, I said, the Lord gave me this image, I just want to give it to you. Here it is, and I laid it out. And then I said, look, I have no idea why that was given to me. But immediately when I told her, like for three years, my conscience bothered me. You have a message to deliver, deliver it. Immediately when I told her, it was gone. I was delivered of the message. That was it. And she said, oh, I don't know what to make of that, but I'll certainly think and pray about it. I said, great. We went our separate ways. She wrote me a note. And it came to me two days later, and she said, you don't know why this came to you, but I do. You have no idea who you are. Every day, you carry us to the altar and place us on the altar so that we can be blessed and broken and sent forth from this place. That's who you are. And I finally understood that that, now, I, listen, I don't live there all the time. But when I do live there, that moment of grace, that's my baptismal priesthood. I exercise it through teaching. I place them on the altar to be blessed, broken, and sent forth. That's my greatest exercise of power. It's not much in the grand scheme of things. But it's what I've been given. It's my track to stay on. So I know where the track is, and I stay there. Well, that's my story. What's yours? God has given you a track. God has given you a mission. God has given you a name. How does he ask you to exercise power? That's what it means to live with him. That's what Matthew Kelly calls the best version of yourself. You see glimpses of it, right? This is true even in Buddhism. They call it flashing bodhicitta, flashing Buddha nature. It comes out of us. Hinduism does a great job of breaking open these experiences of the divinity within. And they're right about the experience. We just think they're wrong about the metaphysics. We have these experiences of grace. God lays down this track and he says, this is how I want you to exercise power. Well, go there. And trust that somebody else is going to do the other thing, right? Because that will be your way of exercising the baptismal priesthood. And that's the power the church needs right now, right? It's supposed to be the age of the laity. 
Vatican II is supposed to be the age of the laity. And we didn't think these were the circumstances under which lay people would have to rise up and collaborate with priests and bishops. But this is what's happening. And Archbishop Carlson said at the Mass of Reparation, basically, I'll paraphrase him, I'm sorry to ask this because it's not fair. We priests made this mess, but I need to ask for your help to fix it. I can't do it alone. Oh, okay, so we're called into collaboration, and I think it's through the baptismal priesthood. Lastly, I think, on this one, then we'll move on to something else. Everything in our, he says right below that, everything in our ordinary life can become an occasion for an extraordinary encounter, what I call Easter in ordinary, Easter experience in ordinary time. Everything in our ordinary life can become an occasion for an extraordinary encounter. It is there that God awaits us patiently, wishing to share with us each moment of our lives and to give it a divine meaning. Indeed, Christ offers us the possibility of saving the world with him, of being co-redeemers in this sense. So Louis Evely says, I didn't bring down his book tonight, he says, what the world wants to solve the problem of evil is not a more clever explanation, but redeemers in sufficient number. Redeemers in sufficient number. There's only one redeemer, Christ. But he gives all of us a share in his ministry. He makes all of us members of his body. And he gives to all of us a particular way of exercising power. This is one of the things I love about Harry Potter. The wand chooses the wizard, Mr. Potter. Why? Because when he puts his hand to the wand, what happens? Stuff happens. The whole world lights up. Like... Things go. Okay, where is it that you put your hand to the wand? Whatever that is, God has chosen you. He's placed the wand of power in your hand there. And for me, he did it around teaching. The question is, where does he do it for you? Because whatever that is, that's your way of exercising power, it's your way of contributing to not answering the problem of evil, but practically making a contribution to addressing it the way Jesus did. Well, there's lots more to be said. This is a great article with great graphics. And you'll see, this is nice because it goes from spring, summer, fall, winter to resurrection. Okay, well, that's interesting. Let's shift modes. What do I want to do next? Yeah, okay, so let's take, a, let's take a brief look at A Grief Observed. Section one. So the first section after the foreword. Let me just ask this general question. In section one, where is he right now? How would you describe this state? Broken. Broken. Yeah. It's good. I would say, yeah. Spiritual desolation. 
See, I think he's in a combination of psychological and spiritual desolation, and he doesn't know the difference between them right now. He probably is in spiritual desolation. I'm just going to, so I'm not going to go geometrical on you this time. I'm just going to say this. Um, I took my blue pen over here. I tend to travel with my blue pen. So three levels. So this is the heart, the human heart. And by the human heart, I don't mean your physical heart, and I don't mean just your feelings. I mean your thoughts, your feelings, and your desires. In the biblical sense, they all originate in the heart. The heart, in the biblical sense, is the place of decision. So thoughts and feelings and desires. And what I want to tell you is there are three levels of these. The first level is physical. So you can be in physical consolation or physical desolation. The second level is psychological. And you can be in psychological consolation or psychological desolation. And the third one is spiritual. You can be in spiritual consolation or spiritual desolation. If I do that, I just want you to make a matrix of all the different possible experiences you can have. Uh, so we'll call those physical consolation and physical desolation times psychological consolation and psychological desolation times spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation. This is easy because it's just a four-part box. I can be in physical consolation and psychological consolation. I can be in physical consolation and psychological desolation, physical desolation and psychological consolation, physical desolation and psychological desolation, and so on and so forth. And we line those all up. The problem is most people mistake psychological desolation for the dark night of the soul, which it is not. Not psychologically, not phenomenologically. And in fact, spiritual desolation isn't the dark night of the soul either. So be cautious when you're diagnosing yourself with the dark night of the soul. <laughs> it is probably not so. I would say he's in a, so he's, I would, I would describe it as an emotional concussion. He's got an emotional concussion. And is he talking to God? Not really. He's just got, just got some felt sense of the absence of God, which would be down here. But by his own admission, is he really aware of all this stuff? Not so much. So I would say he's in a position of emotional concussion right now. When, he's in, when someone's in a position of emotional concussion, what do they need? Somebody listen to him. But what does he say? Is that what he says? To be able to say it, maybe. But right now, he even says, I don't even want to talk to anybody. Right? He says, I... I wish they would be around me and not talk to me. <laughs> this is what he needs. He doesn't need a fancy explanation of the problem of evil. Even scripture doesn't hit home for him, does it? He just needs rest. He just needs to experience the grief. He needs somebody to hold up the guardrails. Because what can happen to a person in this situation? Well, they can make really bad decisions really quickly. 
So somebody's got to hold up the guardrails for them. And what does that mean? Be around them. He, he names that pretty well. I wish they would be around me and talk to one another, but not to me. That's good. Okay. So do that for someone. And he needs time. Just time. Okay. But he does say here, Meanwhile, where is God? Well, I wonder if he's really asking that. We're just throwing that in God's face. This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. So on and so forth. Go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? I tried to put some of these thoughts to sea this afternoon. He reminded me that the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I know. Does that make it easier to understand? No. It doesn't make it easier to understand. Because what's needed at this point? A little courage more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy more than much courage. And the least tincture of the love of God more than all. What he needs right now is just a little sympathy. Not in the form of anyone talking to him or expecting him to talk it out. When is the right time to talk it out? When he comes to you and he's ready. Until then, just be around. Invite him out. Come on, we're going to the pub. I don't want to talk to anybody. You don't have to. Just be along with us. I'm just going to keep an eye on you. That would be good. I want to say that. Yeah. Okay, so no, it, does that make it easier to understand? No, it doesn't. And I've said this many a time to a friend. Why did this happen? I don't know why this happened. Because that's the truth. I don't know why this happened. I know that God is here in the midst of it. I don't know how he's addressing you or what you need right now. I'm not here to provide answers to them. Notice uh, just a little bit later than this, he talks about two very different experiences he had. After the death of a friend years ago, I had for some time a most vivid feeling of certainty about his continued life, even his enhanced life. Have you ever experienced that? Somebody you know is alive on the other side? I beg to be given even one hundredth part of the same assurance about joy. There is no answer. My question is, isn't this a different case? That's his experience, and I think the experience is real in both cases. Why is this so different? She was a part of him, although it's said that a friend is another self, right? So, ah, is it, you're, no, you're right, you're right. I'm just pushing at it a little bit. It's true that she's a part of him, but in a different way. If a friend is another self, but joy was not another self. And he says, right, he says in this section, everything about our life together trained us not to have the same reactions, but complementary reactions. 
She's not another self. She's not a part of him in that sense. She's a part of him in some sense. But this is where we need to get more precise. Yeah. Okay, now remember, this is a guy who had a high opinion of friendship. And his favorite friends were men. And he generally thought that women intruded on that friendship. Right? He's ra he was rather a snob about his friendships. Really, he was. If you read all of his letters, it's quite extraordinary what a snob he was about his friendships with men. And he would talk about how, man, I want to go and spend a nice evening with this guy. And his wife insists on being there the whole time. <laughs> who wanted that? I mean... So that's the guy you're talking about here, right? So he's a very high estimate of his friendship with this other man. And yet, if you watch the story in Shadowlands, he discovered this whole other level of love that he never knew existed. And he was quite startled by it, not really prepared for it. Okay? So there is, there's something else going on there. But I think we need to tease apart a little bit what that is. So we get this sense of what are the contours of these different griefs? And how long does it take something like this to sink in? There's some experiences that it takes years to unpack. Well, the last thing about this section Oh, yeah. I do want to say, uh, yeah, let me say just one more thing here. Yeah. He says this toward the very end. Unless you assume that some other means of communication, utterly different yet doing the same work, would be immediately substituted, but then what conceivable point could there be in severing the old ones? He's talking about the ties of communication being uh, cut. Right? My ties of communication with joy have been cut, and I want God to supply those again in some way. But doesn't the conversation just have to stop? And he says... Unless you assume that some other means of communication, utterly different yet doing the same work, would be immediately substituted, but then what conceivable point could there be in severing the old ones? It's like God who whips away the one bowl of soup and provides you a different bowl of soup. Same soup. Ah, there's something there worth being teased apart. And a Lewis who was not emotionally concussed could have teased it apart. Do you see what it is? Perhaps there is something. Perhaps there is another means of communication. Perhaps it doesn't do the same work. Perhaps it has a different point. By this, I don't mean going to spiritualists. Don't go to spiritualists. Don't get involved with seances. You know why? For one reason, the catechism says it's a violation of the first commandment. You ever read that section? It's a violation of the first commandment to get involved with fortune telling, Ouija boards, horoscopes, you name it. The other reason is when you seek those things out, you open yourself up to unknown spirits who are real and they will accept your invitation and you will have to clean them out. But what if within our experience as Christians, within grace, Oh, by the way, sorry if that scares anyone, and if that scares anyone and you've done that and you need help with that, see Jane Gunther in the Catholic Renewal Center. She specializes in that, among many other things. Okay? 
Well, what if there is a, a means of communication, but it's not the same, it's very different because it serves a different purpose? What would that be? Well, I don't know, are there radio waves bouncing around this room? You betcha. Are any of you tuning them in? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. That doesn't mean they're not there. Are there angels in this room with us? Yeah, you bet they are. Can you see them? Well, no, because they don't appear that way. Well, but how do they appear? Maybe a different way. And maybe the more you tune into that way, and someone like Jane is an expert at tuning in and helping us tune into these other ways. How does the Holy Spirit come to us? Ooh, that's not it. The Holy Spirit comes to us a different way. How does God speak? Oh, here's, this is good, right? Do you have a conscience? Are you my conscience? Yes, Dory. I'm your conscience. We haven't spoken in a long time. Sorry. Yeah, you know what else is up here? Every song from the 80s, right there. It's a terrible thing. Terrible thing. You, do not, right. you don't necessarily want to be afflicted with my memory. My eighth grade son is. God bless him. Do you have a conscience? Does your conscience speak to you? I hope so. What does your conscience sound like? It doesn't really sound, does it? Feels like would be closer, but you got to play with feel a little bit too, right? What if the voice of God is like that? What if it doesn't sound like? What if it more... Are you saying God just comes in feelings? No, 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 no. Thoughts, feelings, desires. What if there's a pattern through them all? What if you could detect the pattern? What if he gave you the ability to detect the pattern? What if there are other ways that are available to us within the life of grace? And what if a period of silence is what's needed to attune our hearts to the other way? Because... Oh, should I be a spoiler? How many of you read the whole book already? Not enough. I won't spoil it. Never mind. Uh, just suggest that he gets an answer to his question. So you notice I've talked around things a lot tonight. <laughs> yeah, last week you talked so directly. and This week I'm talking around things. Because this week your experience is the key, not mine. And so I'm just trying to get you to break open your experience. And some more copies down on this end. We didn't get any down here. Did I not make enough of them? Okay, I'll have to get some more. Pull this out. So I'm going to look a little bit more at the philosophy and theology of this. We're going to begin with 1 John. Oh, put those away. I shouldn't even have given them to you. Oh, we can begin with 1 John. You can look at the first page. That's good. Just don't turn the page. Beloved, 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is of God. Everyone who loves is begotten by God and knows God. Whoever is without love does not know God, for God is love. In this way, the love of God was revealed to us. God sent his only son into the world that we might have life through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son as expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also must love one another. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is brought to perfection in us. Okay, in order to move forward on this problem, we must establish this. God is love. And if we do that, many things will follow. This is not a philosophical starting point. You cannot show by the use of reason alone that God is love. You can show that God is omnipotent and omniscient and one and good and just and so on and so forth. But you can't establish this on the basis of reason alone. It's a theological starting point, not a philosophical starting point, because theology starts with what God has revealed to us about himself and says, okay, if that's true about God, what else can I know? Let me give you an analogy. I have a computer. Why did you write that on the board? Well, you'll see. I have children, six of them. My computer does exactly what I tell it to do, no more and no less. I remember in college learning how to write statistical programming on SPSSX, and if I put a comma or a bracket or a space in the wrong place, it, it obeyed that exactly, <laughs> and it spit out gibberish. And so I had to get all those things right. My computer does exactly what I tell it to do, no more and no less. My children, not so much. <laughs> They sometimes do more, which is delightful. They sometimes do less, which is maddening. I have to clean up after them all the time, the same stuff over and over again. If you could only choose one relationship, which would it be? Children? I, listen, the computer is neat and tidy. The children are messy. They will take your money. They might break your heart. Just to remember the day my son didn't show up at school. And they called me and said, your son's sick today? No, why do you ask? because he's not here, uh, we don't know where he is either. And he came home that night and said, I think I'm gonna drop out of high school. And I had to say, okay, because I trust your heart, but I don't know where this is going. You still wanna choose the children? I will every time. Every time I'll choose them. Freedom is risky. So the question becomes this. God has a choice to make. And the question God asks is, will I make a world in which there's free will or not? And we'll just make a flow chart here. God can answer no to that question 
or God can answer yes to that question. Either way, there will be consequences. If God says, I'm going to make a world in which there's no freedom, there will also be no sin. And if there's no sin, there will be no suffering. There might still be pain, but it won't be suffering. And that would be the extent of my artistic abilities. <laughs> that would be a good thing. There will also be no love. Because you can't have love without freedom. And that, it's true, would be sad. Too bad. If God says, yes, there can be freedom, then there can be sin as well. And there can be suffering. And that would be too bad. But there will be the possibility of love, and that's a good thing. So the question is, isn't this a zero-sum game? Well, it would be a zero-sum game if you were only starting from philosophy, from what you could establish by reason alone. But if you know, because he has revealed it, that God is love, then all of a sudden this becomes crucial. And this becomes inconceivable. And so it's not a zero-sum game. There's some extra weight to this. Love requires freedom. But freedom is risky. And the question is, is it worth the risk? If you chose children over computers, you said it was worth the risk. Now place the entire weight of history in this column. Would you still choose it? That shifts the terms of the debate. And now you can turn over your page to shifting the terms of the debate. I gave you the rest of the logic there, but we needed to work it out. I wanted you to have it so you can reproduce it for yourself. It shifts the terms of the debate. God does everything for a reason, right? To which my first interior thought is, God does not do everything. He permits some things that he does not will. Why does he permit them? He permits them because he wants to preserve the possibility of love. But he can't do that unless he preserves freedom. And it's risky for him to preserve freedom. But he has to do it if this is going to become possible. Well, what does the catechism say about this? 
Can God make a world without freedom? Well, let me put it to you this way. Can God sin? No, well, therefore he's not omnipotent, right? Can God lie? Why is that so tricky? But Jesus said, if I say I have not come from the Father, then I would be a liar. Obviously he can, because he could say, I have not come from the Father, because he just said it. So he can, right? In what sense, then, do you say cannot? Oh, I just hurt somebody's brain. <laughs> it's too late for that kind of thing. In what sense, then, cannot? Here, let's put it this way. Can God make a mountain that God can't move? No, then he's not all-powerful. That's not true. Why not? Right? Okay, good. So it's, it's a linguistic trick. Also, I would say that the simplest answer is, well, would that be a sign of wisdom or stupidity? Right? And then push it. So get somebody to laugh and then push it to the question of contradiction. Right? This is right. So here's what the catechism says at paragraph 310. You should definitely at some point read paragraphs 309 to 314 because they're all about the problem of evil. Why did God not create a world so perfect that no evil could exist in it? Why, God? Why? With infinite power, God could always create something better. But with infinite wisdom and goodness, God freely willed to create a world in a state of journeying toward its ultimate perfection. You see, we're coming back to the question of perfection now. Oh, so you're saying that God made the world not perfect to begin with? No, 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 no. That's not what I said. Because remember, Jesus was perfected as well. So the earth can go from perfection to perfection. What does he mean? What does he mean? What does it mean, the catechism, that God freely willed to create the world in a state of journeying? He goes on to address how that touches on the question of physical evil and suffering. God permits it, however, because he respects the freedom of his creatures. So that's the first thing that happens. The catechism raises the question. But if you look at paragraph 2711, Here's what it says, even more helpful. God's almighty power is in no way arbitrary. Squaring the circle, making a mountain you couldn't move. That's arbitrary. Lying. That's just willful. In God, power, essence, will, intellect, wisdom, and justice are all identical. Nothing, therefore, can be in God's power which could not be in his just will or his wise intellect. Quote, unquote, St. Thomas Aquinas. God's almighty power is in no way arbitrary. God can do whatever is consistent with God's will. Would it be consistent with God's will to create a world without freedom? Can't be because God is love. If God is love, then consistent with that, he has to make a world that's open to love, which means he has to make a world that's open to freedom which means a world in which there might be sin. God is love. The world God makes must be open to love. 
in that catechism 271 sense. That all these things go together in God. Therefore, the world must include freedom. But freedom opens up the possibility of sin, and sin opens the possibility of suffering. I haven't answered the question yet, but I've introduced a new pattern of thinking. That's all well and good for you. Okay, well, let me take a question first. Yeah. Excellent. You know how I did one of these last class? And I did one of them today? I'm going to do another one next class, and it's going to be devoted to that question. Because I've opened up this around free will, which then is sin, but an infant comes down with an uncurable cancer that's not the result of free will or sin. Where did that come from? And what do we do with that? I didn't answer that question. Not yet. I'm going to take a pass at that question next week. Because I think there's a link here. But we just opened up the key foundations that will help us to go through that door. Okay. Let's, uh, let's pause and pray with Hebrews 9. Uh, so much more to say. Sorry, Hebrews 5. Go back to Hebrews 5 here. I know you have it on your sheet there, but I like to read it from here. In the days when he was in the flesh, Christ offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Declared by God high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to stop there. There's so much more I want to cover for you. But I'll push this part off till next week. Here's your closing quote of the day from Lewis Evely. Jesus did not come to suppress suffering all at once, nor to explain it, nor to justify it. He came to assume it and transform it. That's the question for us. Can the suffering be transformed? What is it within your own experiences that help you know the power that God gives you to exercise and how the exercise of that power can transform your experience of suffering and pain. So for next week, please read A Grief Observed, Section 2. I have another background article that I'll give you, but we're going to email it out because it's a big, chunky article, and we're just going to save a tree. And if you want to read it, you can. I'll have Angela email it out to you. And if you don't want to read it, you can just delete it. 
but it's from Joshua Moritz's book, Science and Religion, Beyond Warfare Toward Understanding. I've been studying theology and science for a long time. This is the best book I've seen in probably 20 years. And he's got a whole section devoted to how does science illuminate the question of the theology of suffering? And I think that's worth having in your files. It's pretty complex, so we're not going to go through it. I will integrate some highlights from it. Long range, remember, for the last class, to watch the movie Arrival. We'll talk about experiences of suffering. And I think that's all for tonight. Thank you for being here with me tonight. I hope you'll come back next week. Have a good night.